Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 239, for the 28th of April, 2016. I'm Chester Wisniewski, back with Paul Ducklin. Hey, Paul. Hello, Chester. Glad you survived the first lap of your recent travels. Yeah, the uh, it was really nice seeing uh, our European staff and the the fine folks that are partners and distributors from uh, around the region, and we're off to Las Vegas next week to uh, do the same with our our partners in sales and sales engineers in in the North American team. So quite looking forward to seeing all of them as well. Yes, no rest for you, but at least there's some nice time to do the chat chat this week. What were you, the topics that intrigued you for this week, Chester? Well, you you can't resist something called beautifulpeople.com, apparently. Uh, I, I, I managed to resist it until reading the story on Naked Security, but uh, another dating site that's had a rather large uh, data blunder, we'll call it. I, I seem to, you know, when I saw the story, I, was, I thought this was like deja vu. Like, it was, didn't we have a story about these guys before? Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, if I remember correctly, it was back in about 2011. They did some kind of joke. I suppose it was supposed to go viral about, oh, their their website's supposed to be for beautiful people who have been rated as particularly gorgeous looking, but unfortunately they got infected by a Shrek virus and everything had gone all pear-shaped on their site. And not only was that not a funny joke at the time, it wasn't a particularly funny joke when they actually did get breached and their data did get stolen, which happened last year. And a security researcher apparently found loads of stuff on there and reported it. Uh, beautiful people said, well, it's OK. It was only a test server. Um, but it turns out that it had a full set of production data on it, apparently. This researcher also was not the only guy who had been in there and had noticed. And it seems that it's now up for sale on the on the dark web. Well, by definition, I think anything that has production data is not a test server, and and that should be kind of rule number one. If if the information is real, then the security and the privacy implications are real, and it, it's always disappointing to hear these things. And I, I was even surprised by some of the technical details in the story because I I hadn't worked myself with uh, MongoDB before, but uh, the story said that you know MongoDB defaults to having no authentication, and that seems like a terrible idea. And on that note, you can join us for 200 future chat chats where we talk about this exact same problem, except we talk about it when it's hacking your car, hacking your Internet of Things, hacking your power system. Nonetheless, uh, we'll we'll move along to a topic that I know is very uh, concerning to almost all of our listeners, which is ransomware. Uh, I, I've been, as you pointed out, traveling quite a lot, and particularly in Europe, and uh, I, a, a moment doesn't go by that somebody isn't asking me what can I do? How do I recover? Why did it happen? Uh, but it's always about ransomware. I think a lot of us more savvy users have been aware of the word macro approach to infecting people with ransomware. And I know uh, you wrote an article on Locky that had some good screenshots showing people what that looks like. And now we're looking at a new malicious attachment type. Well, everything new is old again, uh, old is new again, or however that goes. Now, the main way that the crooks are going about it is they're still using scripts to do the downloading of the malware, but the script is written in JavaScript. Now, the the reason we wrote this article is that it seems that the immediate reaction people have, if they're a little bit technical, is they say, well, no one would run a JavaScript file. 
that's ridiculous. Why would anyone run JavaScript? It, do, it doesn't look like a document. It, it just, everyone knows it's a programming language. It's known to have be associated with potential security problems. And you'd never get a court document or an invoice or a security report or anything like that in JavaScript. Doesn't make sense. Turns out that the problem is that firstly, Windows, even Windows 10, still suppresses file extensions by default. So if you have a zip file that contains a file that say readme.pdf.js, it'll look like a PDF. And secondly, unfortunately, JavaScript files, when they're displayed by Windows, they still use an ancient low-res pixelated icon that reflects the fact that script files are written as text objects. And it's, it's like a little sort of old-fashioned scroll of paper. So you'd swear that you're looking at an innocent text file. Why wouldn't you open it? And even if you know it's JavaScript, you probably think to yourself, well, A, JavaScript in email has been turned off in just about every email client for the last decade. And B, JavaScript is safe because of the sandbox and the same origin policy and all of those controls that exist inside your browser. That doesn't apply when you save an attachment to disk and launch it on Windows. It doesn't run in your browser. It runs in what's called the Windows script host, WSH. And that has a whole load of extra infrastructure and ecosystem available for programming that lets you connect to any website, download any content, access the local filing system, save files to disk and launch them. So a JavaScript file that looks like an innocent text file is in fact as dangerous as an exe. Yeah, I, I, I don't think most users have any idea what a JavaScript is and that most of that trickery comes down to that double file extension. Uh, I remember I wrote a story five years ago on Naked Security when Windows 7 launched uh, about how dangerous it was that Microsoft was still including that. Uh, I think it needs to go the way of the auto run. Uh, it did take us about 10 years of screaming and stomping our feet to get auto run to go away. Maybe it's time we uh, ratchet that back up again for JavaScript. Or, well, not just JavaScript, but for any file type, because disguising it with that double extension just leads people into trouble almost every time. The good news is that if you're on Windows, you can just right click, open with, choose new app, pick notepad and say always open .js files with notepad in future. As we show in this article on Naked Security, if it's malware, you'll probably notice because it will be the most meaningless looking gobbledygook you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, and I, I guess folks could also implement protection for their email systems by blocking the .js extension. It's not a commonly emailed extension. It's one of the challenges with things like the infected Word documents uh, is, of course, we all need to receive Word documents in the course of business. But unless you're a web developer, you probably don't need to receive JavaScript extensions. So that's another approach to blocking these. Exactly. And actually, if it just uh, not meaning to do a product pitch in the chat chat, but if you're, if you're a Sophos endpoint protection user, you can use application control to say, I actually want to regulate the use of the Windows script host. It has two forms on Windows, wscript.exe, which is for graphical apps, and cscript.exe, which is for command line apps, but they can both do the same dangerous stuff. Well, the Opera browser announced a new initiative uh, aimed at I guess, at least giving people perceived security. We can argue a little bit about what it means, but they're calling it a integrated VPN inside of your web browser. The concept, I guess, is you 
you know, it's as easy as clicking a button. You don't need to subscribe to uh, five pounds a month for for hide my butt or whatever the VPN services that you're using and that magically you're going to get all this protection. You know, it made me feel a little uncomfortable immediately because I'm going, well, how is my web browser going to like intercept all of my network? Can I, I mean, I, you know, I think about a VPN, I think, you know, I VPN into Sophos and all of my network traffic is now going through the Sophos network. Not only can I access uh, internal assets at the company, but I'm protected by our web filters and our IPS and all of our other things in our corporate environment. It doesn't seem like my web browser is going to be able to provide me with any of those protections, right? That's one of the reasons why we chose to write this particular story up on Naked Security, just to remind people that this feature may sound as though it's delivering a sort of security that it isn't. So it seems that what Opera has done, really, it's kind of more like, I think, what you and I and most Chet Chet listeners would call a proxy, which is not quite the same thing, is it? No, and I, I think the, the beginning name of the term, virtual private, is accurate as well, and it, it's not actually private. It's like the virtual applies to the privacy, not to the network. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I'm not trying to pick on Opera here. I mean, I think this could be a useful tool for people. In particular, it's useful when you're one of those folks sitting at the cafe sharing the free Wi-Fi, and you can surf uh, over an encrypted channel, and at least the people around you aren't going to be able to spy on all of your communications. So I guess it can be useful that way. Now, there was an interesting story about Facebook's bounty, uh, bug bounty program uh, in the news, which was, uh, I guess, one of their bug hunters broke into a system through some vulnerabilities in a, in a third-party application on Facebook's internal network and then discovered that another hacker had already been there. But the more controversial bit that I think you and I are interested in talking about is that that, that uh, previous hacker had been there for quite some time and allegedly was also participating in the bug bounty program. The hacker discovered that the system had already been hacked, which brings to mind you should never assume you're the first person to find a problem and that you can keep it a secret safely because only you know. Others may know, and you really need to disclose these things quickly. Exactly. Uh, does question that person's motivation if they spend what seems like an awful long time digging around, accumulating more and more data, exfiltrating it. I don't know, maybe they thought they'd get a bigger bug bounty in the end. If you're doing that, you shouldn't be surprised when you later try and claim your bug bounty if someone doesn't turn around and say, are you actually just telling us that you weren't able to get enough money out of the crooks? If you're collecting all of that stuff, then your system could get breached. And then that's as bad as crooks having got into the vulnerable system that you're investigating in the first place. Well, this also dovetails with the stories we've been seeing about the FBI and the NSA, etc., and their policies around bug disclosure. Uh, All of those policies are sort of predicated on, again, on the idea that uh, only they know about it and that they should, uh, you know, disclose it to vendors most of the time unless it's, uh, you know, in the national security interest. And I'm not going to uh, get into details on those things, but it's a, it's kind of the same argument, right? Like we can hold on to this for a year because it's useful to us and we don't think anybody else knows, but there's really never a way to know. I imagine, I don't, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, my suspicion is that a lot of bug bounty hunters think, hey, you know, the bug bounty program, which is a kind of implicit default contract that anyone in the world has by reading this document they can again go and do a limited form of penetration testing i think 
some bounty hunters then go, well, this is actually like being a real penetration tester where I've got an official, formal, signed, get-out-of-jail document from the person who owns the network. I've got permission to go over and above and to do certain types of hacks. And even in that case, if you're a penetration tester, the person who owns the network can't give you the authority to go sufficiently far that you actually break the law. That's not their right to give away. Yeah, when I was reading through the contractual stuff myself, I was kind of interested in the, the idea that maybe the uh, contracts for these bug bounty programs could include, uh, you know, a bonus for the least number of records compromised rather than going in and downloading all 10 million records in the database to prove you can. Maybe you could get a bonus if you only download five to prove that you have some self-restraint and that you don't necessarily need to hoard people's personal information. Yes, a sort of Occam's razor bonus. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the sound of that. The simplest, smallest, neatest, cleanest, safest way of proving your point will earn you a bigger bonus than if you go in and smash all the windows and say, hey, you need to buy reinforced glass. Well, on that note, I'll conclude Sofa Security Chat Chat 239. The latest security news is over at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes, they're on the RSS feed, they're on TuneIn, and they are now in the Google Play Store as well as soundcloud.com slash Security. And until next time, stay secure.